You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. This is the Postmortem Podcast, and I'm Mick Garris. There's something special about dark cinema, which perhaps is just a fancy schmancy name for horror movies. But they truly have the potential to be something much more than just scary stories. Aside from being just good stories, the horror genre offers more possibilities for our unique, artistic vision than almost any other. A good one hits you in a deeper place than a drama, a comedy, or a western. The tools of horror cinema, its very vocabulary can be tapped to go beyond the merely real into the hyper-real, even the surreal. Telling tales that seek to illustrate your fears, the ones that come from the subconscious as well as the conscious, calls for a visual imagination, a sense of bringing deeper than the everyday to life, to take the nightmare world and give it birth, to reach deep down into what scares you and puts you face to face with it. It's not surprising that many filmmakers in the horror genre are also gifted in other arts. John Carpenter is touring the world with his band after a lifetime of scoring his own films. Guillermo del Toro is a masterful painter and sketch artist. Joe Dante is a talented cartoonist. Wes Craven was a novelist as well as a filmmaker. It seems like almost everyone I know in the genre has talents outside of the filmmaking world, and I don't find that in other genre. At its best, Horror is metaphorical, phantasmagorical, and a blank slate for a questing creative mind. Today's guest is no exception. David Aldrin Slade is a uniquely gifted film and photographic artist who first drew attention with his music videos, ultimately leading him to his first feature, The Sledgehammer Powerhouse, that introduced most of us to Ellen Page, Hard Candy. But he's followed it up with a remarkable slate of unique, stylized visions of terror and the outré. Well, first of all, do you play an instrument? No. Um, I, I am musically dead. I mean, I know I love music. Um, yes, I yes, I like synthesizers and software music, but I, I am not a musician by any stretch of the imagination. No. But music proved to be your entree into filmmaking. I love music. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny. Um, I started out uh, as a journalist writing and. I was a BMX, because I'm like 15 or however old I am then, 16, and 17, still doing it. Uh, and I'm doing writing, you know, um, skateboard reports and things like that. And, mm. and it's a really easy step into punk rock music, which I love. And I was living in Sheffield in the middle of England, well, in the, the uh, north of England, Midlands is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was around the time of... The big industrial music revolution, which was like cement mixer noise music with guitars and electronic music um, to give you some kind of roadmap. Joy Division had ended. New Order were beginning. Sheffield is this kind of because it was a steel town. Mm-hmm. It was one of the big staple industry steel towns, and in the Second World War, it was bombed to hell. So it was flattened, and it just became this whole industrial cultural scene took over, and it's related to being bombed to hell, mm-hmm. as well as you know the fact that it, it you know it's a working class town, essentially, and. So I was in the midst of all of this culture that was happening. Uh, I was writing... Subversive culture. Very subversive culture, absolutely. Um, Warp Records, who are a very kind of uh, experimental electronic music label, came out of that as well. Um, there was this thing called the Sheffield Independent Film 
units, which was a um, just a place where they just taught you. And it was like a socialist place, right? Mm. So, because it was that kind of place. Right. There were Marxists who lived there. Um, and so I would go there, and because it was free and I'd learned by doing, I kind of um, found that if I could fix things, like, you know, uh, back in the day before computers, you know, um, um, it's going to make me feel, feel really old. <laughs> Just look at me and then you won't feel so No. Old. Man, you look younger than me these days, <laughs> Mick. You look, you're looking very good these days, well, I've got to say. <laughs> you do. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I have a young boy, so my eyes are... <laughs> That's my right, bags the baby. just grown <laughs> under my eyes. But um, so where was I? The, yeah, it, it was one of those things where, like, you know, uh, the editorial was analog machines that had to be sync-locked and stuff like that, and people would always cannibalize and pull all the cables apart, and I knew how to put them all together again, so I'd do that. So you were mechanically oriented. Yeah, I was was able to do that, and I was also writing, and I was trying to, you know, I I was trying to understand film by watching, because I didn't go to film school. Mm -hmm. And so I figured if I could figure out how this thing works i could understand it how if i could figure out how to do this thing i could understand it because i didn't do that whole kind of literary criticism thing where you come in at film school and you learn about mise-en-scene versus montage (laughs) and all of those things i just had a camera and let go and i was doing i I was doing a degree i was doing it in fine art but they allowed us to work in any media we wanted to and they had this you know media department with video cameras and film cameras i couldn't afford the film stock because it was expensive but i started working with video cameras and i listened to music and i ended up doing the music videos when i was there mm-hmm. i just which i just did i made short films i made a little um i was using you know i was doing i was learning my music scene you know i was learning everything i possibly could about everything to do with film in a way in a technical and mechanical approach absolutely but also people were a big thing you mm-hmm. know it's like actors how what right. are they how what how does that work uh, producers who they would have people would come in who wanted to produce how does that work um i you know and i was consuming film going from practically knowing nothing about film I began to just fall absolutely headlessly, head, headlessly, <laughs> absolutely headlessly. <laughs> I, I began to fall head over heels in love with cinema. And so it was your new drug. It was my, um, it was my, it was my substitute for for drug abuse. I didn't ever take drugs. I just watched movies. Oh, you and me both. And there we go. Yeah. I didn't even start drinking alcohol until I was way later in life, but I'm making up for it now. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you, it's funny, I, I gave a talk at the Vancouver Film Festival recently where I started to mention the films that changed me, and people seemed to be interested in that. What uh, were they? Um, they were Nicholas Rogue's film, mm-hmm. The Filmmakers and the Films That Changed Me. And it changed me almost instantaneously. I, I, I recently became a father. I, When you have a child, it changes you in a way that you're completely aware of, and it happens instantly. I think film did a similar thing. Very different, but instantaneously in the same way. Um, and I don't know whether or not it was because... Um, I was already primed in some other ways from writing and from, you know, taking photographs, which I also knew how to do. But I just understood the form I thought. Mm-hmm. I didn't. But right. I thought I did. So I, the film. That's enough to start. It's enough to start. Yeah. I, and I was young and I was arrogant. So, you know. <laughs> um, um, Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien, uh, Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, uh, Nicholas Rogue's performance and bad timing really mm-hmm. changed me. Um, um, Tony Scott's The Hunger changed me. 
These all have incredibly strong visual senses. They do. Which is something that is very much a part of what you do. I think, yes. I'm going to come to that because I think I'm trying, you know, I, I, it's funny. I had to give this talk and I, what I did was I kind of went back through from the, you know, when I think I roughly first picked up a camera, which is around 89, I think, mm-hmm. to now. And it, there's these five-year chronological kind of events that happen throughout the time. Um, and But the most interesting to me is right at the beginning. Because I'm, I'm talking about, you know, there's loads of films that have influenced me and I've loved over the many, many years. But these are films I saw, like, I saw them all together, like two years or one year. So Polanski's Repulsion, mm. you know. I, and I, to talk a little bit about those films, I mean, like, Repulsion, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm in, directly inside this woman's head. I'm looking from outside of her eyes. During her deterioration. Yeah, I'm not just watching... A story from the outside in. I'm inside of this already. Mm. So I didn't understand that entirely, but I knew formally that that was something to do with the form. Um, Ridley Scott's Alien, I believed it. It was in space with monsters. You never believe that stuff because mm-hmm. it always looks terrible. This I believed. I believed that there was something natural about it. The way it was held together, um, the way the shots cut together was very sharp, sharper than I was used to seeing. Uh, I don't know how to describe other than sharp. All of these things had an effect to me. David Lynch's Blue Velvet and before that Eraserhead mm-hmm. um, had this formal dream narrative, yet it still kind of held together in a way. And there was definitely something about how, not just what. It was about how the film was made. You know, it was about how the shot was seen with the sound. All of these things that as a novice, knowing nothing about film, suddenly all of this stuff is rushing at me and it's fascinating to me and it's exciting to me. And I realized that filmmakers can be as cool as rock musicians. <laughs> and I realized I'm not going to be in a band. I'm going to try and make films. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, I, I, and I, I did. I learned by doing... Um, music videos became the thing I f- found I could do, and I l- they became my film school. Uh, I never went to film school, so I didn't get the formal training. It's kind of interesting. The first time I started to, it's the first time I kind of worried about eye lines. Mm-hmm. You know, eye lines being, you know, which way you look and with, the, with relation to where the camera's positioned and the actors to make them basically look like they're looking at each other. Rather than looking at apart from. Yeah. yeah. So which that when is it easy cuts, to make that mistake. When it cuts together. And I'd somehow internalized how to do that, mm. but I didn't know what it was called. So someone, you know, I, was do- I remember when I was doing Hard Candy, this is many, many years later, my first feature film. Someone said, oh, are you sure they brought the eyelines? And I'm like, eyelines? <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, God, I made a load about eyelines. <laughs> you know, and, and you'd already that far, intuited that. But I intuitively knew yeah. all about it. And I, so I looked at the, you know, I got one of the, I grabbed a textbook from, you know, I went to a rush to a bookshop nowhere in prep to shoot my first feature. And I kind of went and, you know, opened the textbook and, and, and a Barnes and Noble and looked down. I was, oh, okay. It's, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I understand what that. <laughs> okay, thank God. <laughs> you know, I already knew that. <laughs> I kind of think I already knew that, but yeah. now I know what to call it, you know. Right. Um, camera left, film left, frame left. And um, so, yeah, so, yeah, it was a process of enthusiastic doing. And yeah, absolutely. There was this kind of, there's this kind of mechanical visual uh, side of me that is, you know, really, really, um, you know, I'm a nerd. I, I want to find out how it all works. 
Right. You know, but I, I but that goes beyond the machinery and into people too, and stories and, and everything. I kind of want to know how it all works. Well, one of the things I find fascinating about the world of music videos, as well as the mm-hmm. world of genre film, particularly yep. in the horror genre, is that they're as much about creating atmosphere mm-hmm. and stylization, yes, and and the idea of metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, visual metaphor, yeah. and things that you can't do in a straight drama or a comedy or a yeah. western, but. But there is a surreality to it uh, that really makes an artist bloom, which we talked about in the introduction a little bit. Right. And so do you feel that connection between yeah, I think, the genre? I think, you know, when, when you're doing music videos, and, and I haven't done one for a while now, probably about five or six years, maybe longer, seven, eight years. And, um, but, you know, from the beginning, you know, what you've done, you've given a piece of music. If there's lyrics, there's poetry. Mm-hmm. Because lyrics, you know, the, the lyrical form is essentially poetic as opposed to, you know, as opposed to um, prose, and so you have is something which is, you know, has an abstraction already, and you are given the task of creating something. Usually, there's not much. Usually, when I said certainly when I was beginning, the brief was usually color or black and white. The choice is yours. There was mm-hmm. no brief. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. There was no brief. Um, to me, I was really in, the two things I was interested in was if one was making a portrait of that artist, of, of that musician at that time. Um, and to some extent, I was happy with just that because right. I was fascinated in portraiture and people. You know, so there's a fine way to kind of tease something out of a particular personality and, and make that you know, cinematic in some way. That was kind of enough for me. But I was also really interested in, in, in these kind of abstract metaphorical stories that were not necessarily, they didn't have a three-act structure right. in a narrative way. Um, but they could have symbolism. They could have meaning. Uh, and the other thing about these little structural stories was they had to be watched over and over again because at that time, at the very beginning, these things were on high rotation on, on the music channels, which, which mm-hmm. don't really exist anymore. But, you know, MTV was showing music videos. So this thing, you if you did a song that turned out to be a hit song, it may be shown three times an hour. Right, know, right. All day long. So, you, it, so the three, you know, the people who made the kind of short story straight narrative music videos didn't really fare well because they, you couldn't, once you knew what the ending was and you, you kind of, if the filmmaking wasn't, visceral enough to drag you through it again and again and again. You couldn't watch it again and again and again. So, you know, the formal side of it, there's also this thing as well, and I kind of think at this point, many 20-odd years later, I think it, there's a certain level of formal tightness and sharpness. It made me, when, I, when we made a music video and we cut it and we finished it and the track was really good as well, it would make me feel alive. I mean, mm-hmm. it would make give me a high watching it and I'd be excited you know, in a way that you are making, you know, with a really amazing film, it, 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 uh, you felt it in your body. And I don't know what that is, except that it made me feel alive as a filmmaker and it made me want to keep doing it in and itself. Well, fulfilling as, a creative quest has, is one of the most fulfilling yeah. feelings I can imagine. Yeah, but as opposed to just being a means to an end, you know, like, you know, right. a lot of people when they, oh, you know, I really wanted to do, <clears throat> make movies, so I did music videos to learn. And then I, I, you know, I became fascinated in the music video form. You know, I became really aware of other film directors who were my peers at the time uh, and what they were doing. You know, people like Wiz, who was this amazing British, who made these rock operas. And they were like mm. these three-minute rock operas, but they were amazing. You'd watch them over and over again. And, you know, they had as much symbolism as Pasolini, you know. <laughs> but they were for a rock musician, you know. And so... um 
So I, it was more than just learning how to, to go to a place. Uh, it was really a fascination with that form. You know, and commercials came along. I, the thing about commercials, for me and commercials, which came quite quickly after that, was that was more of a means to an end. Because the form, once I'd got done a few, did, well, didn't interest me very much. Right. And you were selling a product. And you're selling a product. And even the coolest product in the world is still a product. It, it, it's, it, I also didn't really break heavily into that industry i did some really big well-paying jobs mm-hmm. and and actually that's how i ended up meeting with uh jake scott and then ridley scott and they they were instrumental in bringing me from england to america to live here um through you know and made money for mm-hmm. them by doing commercials sure um and, and i loved doing them when i did them but it just in terms of the form it was it became very quick to understand what it was you were doing whereas music videos seem to have this infinite possibility in this form. You know? Well, having had the opportunity to watch you work a little bit, it's fascinating to see how you do approach every aspect of filmmaking. There, are, I came at it uh, from a writer's standpoint right. yep. and first started working with Steven Spielberg, who yep. awakened me to what there is in the visual vocabulary and yeah. the tools to create that. Mm-hmm. And watching how philosophically you approach it with the different actors yes and technically you approach it but i still feel there's some sheffield there there's yeah? an industrial an industrial quality <laughs> to to your visuals right and i see i don't see people as direct influences on you like david lynch and the people you were yeah. talking about yeah. Yeah. but the allowing the original vision of your own mm. to take over and and speak your personality mm. through the visuals, and mm. I, I find that fascinating. Mm. So I, I'd love to find to to find out how you made that transition from three and four minute shorts, thirty second sure, commercials, yeah. into your first feature. How yes. did that come about? How did that come about? My first feature film um, was well. There's a longer story to be told, and I think we could do a little bit of it, which it relates to the th- project that you and I just collaborated on. In fact, um, so. I was writing, always writing. I was publishing short stories in, usually in youth culture, subculture magazines, some in America, some in England. Uh, so you were doing fiction as well as journalism. I was doing journalism. bits of fiction, yeah. 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 BMX fiction to begin with, skateboarding mm-hmm. fiction, and it crossed over. And I was also doing band, you know, I, like I'd just been, I'd been, I'd been interviewing musicians because mm-hmm. I love music. Yeah, I and interviewed Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, yeah, and all those. To me, it was like Steve yeah. Albini and the kind of more industrial grunge, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. things. But those were the people that, uh, that I was interested in, I kind of sort out and, and interviewed. So... There was always this narrative drive to me, um, and I, I was always writing stories. And, and of course, you know, going to film, not going to film school, but going to art college, I'm, still, I'm making these short films, which have to be written. And I never, you know, very rarely did I adapt anything. I, I, I would use, generally write this stuff. I mean, I, it's funny that I haven't written um, anything uh, for, you know, for the long, you know, for my entire career, really, because what I'd say is that I've been really super lucky to just work with way better writers than me. <laughs> I've been lucky that I've, you know, I've always, I, you know, I've, I've had these films that I've wanted to make and maybe, and we maybe can talk about this too, maybe now that film and television are merging a little bit uh, formally, there's a possibility that I could end up writing more uh, things that I direct. But I, you know, essentially, you know, when you do music videos, you have to write it all yourself. So I, the form of writing I enjoy and I do, I just, you know, I've just been in the situation where I've always managed to get better scripts than the <laughs> ones that I've written. So I've done them. Um, but so one of the projects, um, I'll tell you the, trying to do the brief version of this, several music video, several years into my music video career in England, um, I came across a short story 
called Traumatic Descent, and it was written by Lawrence C. Connolly. Mm. Um, this is a familiar title. That's a familiar title. <laughs> um, and it's actually been cha- the ti- he actually eventually changed the title uh, in, in the compilation of short stories that he wrote that came out called This Way to Egress. And This Way to Egress is the is the film that is the part of Nightmare Cinema that you and I worked on together. Um, so this is way back in like 2000, you know, the year 2000, 2001-ish. Uh, and I was working, um, you know, doing music videos, but trying to make, um, films. A friend, a really good friend of mine, a guy called Charlie Cantor, uh, had managed to write and direct a, a vampire movie. And it was a really tiny, low budget, but, and he was being approached by producers to make another horror movie. And he didn't really want to, but he kind of liked the producers. So we all met and he said, well, what if I write it and David directs it? And we're like, okay, all right. And and they had a um novel that they'd optioned. It was a it was a very popular British horror writer. And we we were we were, you know, we were like, okay, maybe we'll do this. And so uh, and I was but I was still doing music videos and I was going to America. So I I was gonna get on a plane to Los Angeles and I said, Look, I'll read this novel on the plane and you better read it to my friend Charlie who was gonna write it and we'll you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. These producers want to option it. And, and this was exciting to us because we, you know, never been involved in, in, in film in any way. Sure. You know, we'd just been done with the things we'd done, except for my friend who'd made his own independent film, which was done entirely on grit and council money, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so we started reading this novel. It was a terrible novel. And I, I tried to read it over and over again. And by the end of the flight, you know, to, to Los Angeles, I called my friend when I got there. I said, this is terrible. We can't do this. And he said, yeah, it's awful, isn't it? I tried to read it. It was terrible. I'm like, oh, God, what are we going to do? Why don't we just give him another short story that we will, another story that we want, you know? I said, okay. So we did. And I t- pitched them Traumatic Descent, which they liked. And so uh-huh. we developed um, with these producers this film, a feature-length version of Traumatic Descent. Later became This Way to Egress. Um, my friend passed away. He, he had a horrifyingly unfortunate esophageal cancer. It just came from nowhere and took oh, his Jesus. life in his mid thirties. So I kind of had this whole, just emotionally, it was also connected then. So I kind of took this screenplay and I put it on the shelf. Hmm. Couldn't, couldn't look at it. Hmm. Um, part of that whole journey was also getting me to live in America. Part, now I was trying to get that film made beyond the script. Uh, we had a script. We were trying to get the finance in place then to make it. And in England, what I quickly found was, unless you've already made a film, unless you come out of a film school with a lot of connections, people will meet you and talk about making a film, but nobody really wants to make the film. Mm-hmm. So I realized if I was going to make this film, I was going to have to go to America, going to go to Los Angeles. And, you know, my the talk, vague talks were there with various companies who might take me. Mm-hmm. to america um to do videos and commercials and i realized i gotta have to do this because you know my friend was was ill there was a time on that that was you know immutable and so it really drove me to come and live in america so 2002 my friend passed away i shelved this way to egress i put it away um to some extent probably always will that version of it um and but came to America, restarted my life. Uh, by 2004, I'd be, I'd read the script for Hard Candy. And I just, it just drove, I just burned through the script. I read mm. it quick. I, I read slowly. I'm a very slow reader. And I just read all the way through this thing. And it excited me on the level of 
there was just a moral center to it, but none of it was mapped out. It was, it was this film to me about two monsters, mm. but it was also a noir. To me, it was a classic Hollywood film noir, mm-hmm. you know, but it was small and it was new and it was exciting. It was stripped down. And, and the perfect first feature. And yeah, and yeah, and, if, and a thing that I felt I could do. Mm-hmm. This was the thing I felt I could do it well. So You're I felt, ready. So I felt, yeah, I, 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 you know, I knew I had my chops. May, you know, I may not have been the best at whatever you know else I learned over the course of my career, but at that point, I could do a two-person thriller. I understood how thrillers worked. I felt I felt like I had a language that actually was as psychological as anything else, which I developed. Largely through music videos and experimentation, sure. but you know, I felt like, you know, uh, I, I just felt like I could do it, and so I went and I pitched and I got the job, um, and and we made the film. We made the film for nine hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And and you know, the 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 the, the transition from filmmaking was kind of the, the, there's just no. There's no kind of break. I just kind of went from one thing to the next. So thing. it felt like a natural transition. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a natural tra- transition with the sort of Damocles of knowing <laughs> that it's the first feature film you've ever done, and mm-hmm. that you know everything was hanging over you for sure. But I managed to. I, what I managed to do is, uh, I remember meeting a number of my friends and saying, "I think this is a poly. This may be the most control I'm ever going to get mm. in a feature film." So you must come and help me. And I work with your Willems, the DOP that, you know, I've worked right. with ever since. But also I work with through music videos and commercials, Art Jones, my editor, who again, through videos and commercials, was my editor. Um, uh, Barry Wassman, who again has passed away, but, but quite recently passed away. Um, Barry was 60. At the time we started shooting out candy, amazing mm-hmm. first AD. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I needed my editor, my DOP. And my first AD, it couldn't be other people. So, and I met a wonderful producer in, in Hans Ritter, who was uh, became my line producer on that. Really, my hands on, and David Higgins, who was the producer who you know who who developed the script. You right. know, just let me do it. So you had the team. I had the team, and I and we found Ellen Page. And I, I, I'm telling you, when you find Ellen Page, <laughs> I, I, no, no, honestly, when I. I a videotape of Ellen reading a scene blew our minds. It was, it was, there were two scenes she read and it was just there. It was all there on a piece of, you know, you know, just a, you know, just a usual casting camera on a tripod. And it's a mind blowing performance. It is. It I mean, is. And, 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 and a career making one. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But, um, I mean, I was lucky to find her. It was funny. We found her very quickly and then we had this tape so it was easy to get, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I met with, I'm not going to start saying the names of actors who didn't end up being in it because yeah. it's always a funny ga- a game that you don't want to play. Right. But, you know, a couple of really, like one particularly very well-known actor was like, oh my God, I want to be in this. And my finances are like, who's that guy? He's never going to be here. And he became a <laughs> massive star. But anyway, we got Patrick Wilson, who again, became, you know, again is amazing and right. astonishing and, and a friend to this day. And um, I felt could match her. And that was hard, finding someone who could match Ellen. Well, both of them had to have so much power. And I mean, this is a two-hander. This is a movie with just two people in it, basically. And it's powerful in every frame. And in in so much that the power is is often a reverse amount of power. And it took such great chops. And to give all the credit in the world, I gave them so many 
notes, and they did all of them in ways that were amazing. We couldn't really rehearse that much, but we did rehearse, which wasn't right to rehearse that material. A lot of it had to be spontaneous. 18 days was our schedule. That was very fast. Wow. It was crazy fast. Crazy fast. Um, and we just prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared. I prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared. And they just came in and w- they trusted me. And mm. I'm so glad they did. They, it was, we got on really well almost immediately as we went, came into the first day. And we just kept going until we got to our 18th day. 18 and a half days. We did like a half day, like driving day. Mm. We shot the roof of the arc light for that opening sequence. Ah, a little, little kind of driving right. sequence. I was given freedom. I, I got to make the film I wanted to make. And that was an amazing thing. Which leads us to the studio experience that followed. Right, yes. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, just, just, just to, you know, to jump in time, um, but just go back. Once it was, the film was cut, I took the film out of America into London mm-hmm. to work with my own editor ah. in London, which not to take it away from anyone particularly because it was an independently financed film. Sure. David Higgins, an amazing producer who totally was on board. Everybody was on board. Um, but we were doing a lot of very experimental things with form. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the money financiers, you know, the people who were a little nervous at one point when they saw like the first, like the graded first version of it. I remember mm-hmm. at one point them saying, oh, God, you know, you may have to just make this more like traditional if we don't sell at Sundance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did sell at Sundance, and so that wasn't an issue. But, yeah, then I went on to do a studio movie, and, and very quickly afterwards as well. Yeah, uh, it was one after another. So yeah. tell me about the difference in the approach there. Here's something based on a popular graphic novel. Yeah. And uh, so were there different expectations? Funnily enough, I think, I mean, I had a pr- now in retrospect, I had a really good experience yeah. doing it. I was protected by Sam Raimi, mm-hmm. who obviously was a massive fan, and Rob Tappet, his producer. Right. Great they, guys. Who, 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 you know, and they knew, you know, they knew their shit. I mean, right. they, they were incredibly way more seasoned than I. Um, but they liked my familiar film, and they, and I, you know, I had a thousand ideas that I wanted to do. And I was just, I just bowled forward. And I, I was also, you know, I kind of, you know, I was tough with it too. I fought people, I fought the studio, I fought people to get the things I wanted to get, you know. Um, and I didn't fight them very well because, I, you know, that's a whole, uh, that kind of political fighting is something I'm not not that great at, although I don't need to do that much these days. But in the development process, did you find it? A little it bit, to, but not much, no. Yeah. I mean, again, Sam and, and, and Rob, you see, you know, Rob is this, you know, you, you know Rob Tapper, he's yeah, the gruffest yeah. guy. He's gruff. <laughs> Yeah. And I say the word gruff with love. And he know, knows how to make a horror movie. Right? Absolutely. He knows how to do a jump scare. He knows how to do it. And he'd be like, David, this is what you do. This is how you do it. <laughs> and he'd just tell me the nuts and bolts way of doing it. Right. And I'm like, we're trying to make this more psychological approach mm-hmm. with this darker undertone. But, you know, so you feel in your whole body. Oh, this is how you do it. You do this. You, do this. <laughs> you know, we need, we need the scene with the monster that never dies. We need this scene. We need that. And I learned a, a ton, tons and tons and tons you know, uh, from those producers. The studio uh, were a little a little more nervous. Coming in through the door there, they said, oh, you know, we're not going to talk about the rating. We'll just figure it out. And I was yeah, like, oh, right. no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. And, and that, was the one of the, that was the one of the big fights that had, because I just said, look, we have to say that it's R-rated. Otherwise, how are we going to make the film? 
you know, yeah, oh, they're going to fight for a PG-13, which they are. Yeah. And, and it was just it was something that, you know, they were prepared to throw the film at that point. You know, and I decided that it would probably be better if I did the same thing. So but it, in the end, they agreed. You right. know, but it was like you don't want to put someone's nose out of joint right at the beginning of your relationship with them. But I kind of did. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm like, no, it's going to be our rating or I'm not doing it. And they were like, you know, well. Um, That's so, a big decision that needs to be made up front. It's like yeah. uh, getting married and deciding one of you wants a kid and the other doesn't. You know? Right. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing was um, our good friend Eli Roth had just put out Hostel, mm-hmm. you know, which had done a major scare on, 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 on the whole film industry as well. Yeah. yeah. And so every third note was, oh, we don't want it to be like Hostel. We can't be like Hostel. And nothing's <laughs> Hostel, God's <laughs> sakes! Have you even seen Hostel? It's quite a good, quite a good movie. Yes. I mean, you know, should we should be sure, we should be so lucky to some degree. But um, you know, so there was. I remember showing a vampire test to someone from the studio, from a from an executive from the studio, and who just was like, "Are you fucking crazy? This is a studio movie." <laughs> <laughs> he had blood all over his mouth, and he was ah, scream, screeching and screaming. I, I mean, going into it, you know, I met with uh, Neil uh, with Steve Niles, who I loved. Yeah. Great guy. Who'd written a draft, which was more of a Nosferatu, smaller film that I Mm. I really liked. He tried to keep as many of those elements as possible. They tried to write it with other writers, two much more mainstream action movie writers. And Stuart Beatty and a couple other people had taken a crack at it. And I wasn't interested in those scripts. We had to keep Stuart's name because of... Uh, on the script, but we kind of threw all of his stuff away. And I brought in Brian Nelson, who wrote Hard Candy with me, mm. to essentially say, look, let's look at Steve's quite short book and let's expand character out from it, but let's keep Steve's book as the structure of the thing. Let's not go off and make superhero vampires and vampire penguins and vampire bears and shit, which had all come in other drafts that I'd read that had been developed mm, separately. And so we did something much more much smaller in some respects uh, and closer to Steve's book. Um, we merged some of the characters together. We merged uh, Marlo. And, well, Marlo was Marlo, but he was kind of also Vincente, mm-hmm. which is also yeah. in the book. Well, the graphic novel was yeah. kind of a breakthrough graphic novel. Yeah. It wasn't like anything else at its time, and and really, it was much more this, punk rock. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was it was very it was a punk rock graphic novel. And Niles is a pretty punk major rock guy. punk rock yeah, guy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, it totally was a punk rock graphic novel. And, and we tried to keep as much of that punk rock as we could uh, going into it. You know, the fact that they, you know. <laughs> the vampires all dressed like they were in bands, you know, like <laughs> yeah, black yeah. suits and t-shirts, <laughs> you know. The, um, but we, you know, I also was trying to like make something physiological. I knew that really, when you extend that out to two hours, you kind of have a damn prank story. You mm-hmm. know, you have like a hide and 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 and, and survive story. Right. And I also tried to make the vampires as convincing as vampires in a physiological way, make them stronger, but not supernatural. I try to avoid all things supernatural in them. You know? So it was kind of near darkish in that yeah. sense. Yeah, it, it was. was yeah. They're grounded. They were yeah. as grounded as they could. They were faster, they were stronger, but they were essentially people who ate you. you <laughs> yeah. know? And the concept of being in the longest nights on yeah. earth in this town is, is a brilliant one, yeah. being no, trapped in a vampire world. I, and it was fun it was really fun and we you know one of the things rob i thank rob tappet for is he took me to new zealand where i had i think more control than i would have done mm-hmm. because the studio didn't want to come all the way down to new zealand um and they you know they sent various agents along the way to, to to you know to make sure that i wasn't being insane 
uh, but we were insane anyway. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you started insane and go up. Yeah, yeah. And I took as many, you know, I took my editor, I took my, I took as many people as I could with me, and I had the amazing fortune of working with Weta Workshops on, oh yeah, on my practical effects. Peter Jackson's yeah, company. Absolutely, I decided to do almost everything practical except for some really specific digital things that no one had really ever done before, mm-hmm. which was, I, I learned very quickly with the studio just not to tell them. <laughs> just <laughs> That's to, the if it's never been done before, don't tell them that. You know, right. don't be excited about it. I'll tell them that because they'll just, they would just panic at that point. You know, uh, first time filmmaker as far as they're concerned because you're, you're doing something that's never been done before. Let's not do that. Right. So yes. we just, if they're like, not familiar with it. They're very, so there were a lot of things yeah. that were just like, they were like, oh, we don't want you to do that. But we managed <laughs> to kind of make, get them through, I think, mostly. Well, uh, you're a strong director. You had strong producers on your yeah, side. And, and that's a great team. Now, your next studio movie was something quite different. Yeah. Here, you were doing the third chapter in an outrageously successful yes. franchise yep. of Twilight. Mm. So tell me what the difference between, did you have somebody running running interference for you no. or were you, you, were, <laughs> you were on your own? It's funny because, you know, I, I, the possibility of it came up very, it all happened really fast. It was, like, oh, it was kind of started and was over to some extent in the flash. The production schedule was very, very, very uh, constrained. Um, but the suggestion came up and I was like, well, I don't know. And they said, well, would you read the books? And I couldn't, I, I just tried, started reading them. I didn't, you know, it wasn't <laughs> my cup of tea, but I, st- but, but they just sent me the third one mm-hmm. after a while. I, I tried to read the first and the second one. And anyway, I was just kind of scratching my head and just kind of trying to figure out whether, it, whether there was anything about it that interests me. And well, you're now the vampire guy. I'm the vampire guy. Well, what happened? I, I, there was a point, I, I remember calling my agent and my manager saying, well, I wouldn't hire me. <laughs> you know, you, but the third book was really good. I got the third book and I started reading it and suddenly I just clicked, just clicked and I started reading it. And, and I had to go, I, I did eventually go back and read the other two. But the third is, you know, I, and people who were familiar with the franchise were like, yeah, no, the third one's the best one. Oh. So, I can, so I went to, you know, various meetings. I had a lot of ideas. Um, the second one hadn't come out yet by the way mm-hmm. the second one was being had was being shot or was you know, about was prepping when i was taking meetings and mm-hmm. was gonna be shot and chris weiss was direct was in vancouver directing that while i was taking meetings and i literally had the kind of conversation like with the studio and i said i i don't know i wouldn't hire me you know why me and they said, well, you know, you've done a really good vampire movie <laughs> and you've done a movie starring 15 year old girls so Oh, it makes sense to me. Makes and I was like, yeah, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. And before I knew it, it was in. And um, neither of those movies were intended for fifteen-year-old no, girls, no, mind you. But no, you know. no, no, neither of them were. Um, but they, you know, they trusted me with the franchise. And I, uh, and here's the thing. Also, this it's not that big at this point. Mm-hmm. The second one hasn't come out yet. Um, Catherine Hardwick's movie's out, and it's a yeah, it's a fun punk rock little movie. Right. That one. It's not a massive, vast studio movie. It's no. a punk rock little movie set in Poland. But a huge success. A massive success. Yes. You know, with a great title scene at the end. It's like a rock and roll music video. And uh, and then Chris Weiss's one, which hadn't been made yet, um, became the one that kind of said, massive franchise. That one, when I remember being invited to the premiere of that one while I was prepping the mm-hmm. third one and going, oh, my God. Because... It was huge. Mm. It was massive. It was enormous. And suddenly everything changed at that point. I was still kind of under the proviso that it's kind of around the same size, if not maybe a little smaller than 30 Days of Night, Mm -hmm. the film I was going to make. And then I saw this other, you know, I saw this thing with like, 
oh god well you know the the, the premiere it was like a heat one of the biggest staples center and oh just my god millions of people no pressure huh and and yeah so you had to go and do that but um but you know it was the third movie so there was a certain amount um because it's the third movie in a franchise there's a release date and there mm. it is so the you know the card is a little bit before the horse you've got to hit that release date no matter what happens there's a bunch of stuff that you just inherit mm-hmm. you know there's things there's visual effects stuff and all kinds of stuff that i wanted to change and i tried to change and some of them i was really successful in doing some of them i wasn't you know right. uh, and well, there ground this, rules had this, been laid. Yeah, right? there were these ground rules that had been laid, and there were just things you know, like the sparkly thing was a thing that was that was a done deal, right? They were doing it the same way they did it in the first movie, the same way they did it in the second movie. I had this whole concept and these tests for how to make it look more realistic looking. Nope, not interested. Um, I managed to get the get the wolves a little more interesting looking, a little more well, more realistic looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I changed a little bit of that stuff, and I changed a lot of other things. I, I, I also kind of changed a lot of the language of the film because it didn't seem to me that there was any really strict language that had been set up in the first two cinematic language yeah cinematic language that needed to be you know that needed to kind of be continuing canon in any way that that didn't seem to be not that there weren't cinematic films but just there wasn't a language that one person had moved to the next to the next right so i was given a free Rain of that stuff. The stylistic things, the lighting and the lens choices and, and yeah, the approaches. Yeah, I was able to do yeah. that mm-hmm. stuff. I was able to, I had pretty much a free range doing that stuff. I, I, I inherited Javier Girasarobi, who was a wonderful cinematographer who shot the others and a number of mm, astonishing, stuff. wonderful Spaniard. Mm-hmm. Spoke very little English and I spoke very little Spanish, so we got a great... Um, <laughs> And now, what about involvement by the studio during the process of development and shooting, and then ultimately the post-production? Um, you know, it's it was it was a tougher one, I think, in some respects, because it wasn't an R-rated movie, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of moving parts. And, and you knew that going in, it was yeah, I did. You know, I mean, listen, there was nothing in there where I felt like. Oh my God! I was I, I I was completely and utterly devastated when something like there were a lot of things. I'm like, yep, expected that to happen. Let's mm-hmm. figure out how to deal with it. Right. You know. Um, but um, my writer Melissa Rosenberg was amazing, and stu- and tough. Oh, good. You know, uh, Melissa had, had adapted I think the other two, and and she was great. Um, and so I got on really well with her. Um, and. I managed to get Howard Shaw to, to oh, score yes. it. Who did all of Cronenberg's movies, yeah. yes. So that was wonderful. Uh, he started out uh, heading the band on Saturday Night Live way right. back when. Mm. And uh, it was his, Howard Shaw and his all-nurse orchestra. <laughs> it was oh, Howard was lovely. And, He's and an we, amazing composer. And we, you know, we did it with a full orchestra in, nice. uh, in, in, in um, Abbey Road Studios. Oh well. wow! Yeah, so well, there's a, history. So for there was you. plenty of like you know, kind of bucket list. There, were, I mean, I, at a certain point, I saw it as a bunch of bucket list stuff to do. Ah. you know, I tried to kind of, you know, make the very best film I could, but I really wanted to kind of experience, you know, uh, a lot of stuff. I, you know, I, I, I feel the only the only things that you know, lasting things that I was like, oh, I wish that hadn't happened or whatever. One of the things was Phil Tippett, who was an astonishing. Visual effects, guy. who began, you know, started go motion for Star Wars, mm-hmm. and um, he and I just didn't get on, and I mm. really wanted to get on with him, but he and I, he, you know, his the, his approach was completely diametrically opposed to mine, and so wow. I really, you know, I I really liked Phil, and I had so much respect for Phil, mm-hmm. but we just were, 
chalk and cheese. We didn't, you know, it's not that we were, we didn't actually not get on as people, but we just, our approaches were very different. So we ended up always having to kind of argue over process. Mm. Um, well, you strike me as very much a renegade filmmaker mm-hmm. in that you, you have a vision, you mm-hmm. set out to fulfill it, and you're going to. Um, That's the problem, right? Because yeah. and, I know that I am. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, and, and at a certain point, you've got to be a bulldozer. You and know. so I don't see... Mm-hmm. You as the guy doing a third film in a franchise yeah, uh, that's no. intended for teenage girls. Yeah, it's odd. So, Neither do I now. But it seems like you accepted that assignment going in as if it were your Mission Impossible yeah. and did this amazing yeah. job for this amazingly successful movie. Did it change much during the process of uh, once it was being screened? and uh, were there, Not really, no. Yeah. Um, there was an unfortunate thing that... I, well, one of the things I think was unfortunate was... Um, the studio wanted to have another pass at the edit because of their own internal notes. Uh, and it never, because it, we got, so what we did was, you know, we film tested it. Mm-hmm. And so a certain, you know, the director's cut and there's various producer cuts. Um, director's cut is always the first thing, you know, that's how it is. You get 10 weeks or whatever it is, the union minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you put it forward and then the, and then everybody starts talking and you start recutting and recutting. And so we, but what we, you know, because of the second movie and because of the massive, enormous, faithful fan base for the books, they had these entire auditoriums that they could fill with fans who God. promised not to tell a word to anyone mm-hmm. and who would be honest and give you feedback. And it actually wasn't a bad thing. Nice. You know, it, what, because they loved it, the material. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a bunch of people who knew nothing about anything who were just going, like, I didn't like it. They, they maybe knew the new universe better than you did. Indeed. In yeah, absolutely. And so we would, you know, we, we started testing you know, with full, you know, Nielsen test reports. Right, right. And, you know, the early cuts tested better. Hmm. You know? But the studio wanted it to be smoothed out. And there were a lot of filmmaking choices a lot but there were some filmmaking choices i think that were sharper and more experimental maybe and mm-hmm. certainly the way it was cut right um but you make a the, deal with the devil at a certain point indeed yeah yeah you do and so that was i mean you know in terms of the downsides there weren't that many i guess right you know um there were just a bunch of stuff that was you know there were production problems but there always are and i wouldn't necessarily point at a studio the studio movie and say it was a studio movie problem it was just a production right just you know what comes up what comes up um and it was a very and 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 in the scheme of it and people forget about this it was a really fast really fast you know very 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 short prep the whole process very short post Mm -hmm. Uh, we shot 30 something days, 35 days, which is not a lot for a studio, for a right. blockbuster studio movie. That's <laughs> for sure. For number, with a three in the title. Yeah. 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 So, well, um, so, you know, I, I got off okay. Well, you made a move into television, but it was yeah. amazing television. You'd done Breaking Bad and the occasional, mm. um, uh, episodic. Yeah. But Hannibal, to this day, I think is the best broadcast TV series ever. Oh uh, and you. you did the pilot. Yep. You did uh, multiple episodes. Yep. But that's a TV series with a cinematic vision. Yep. And tell me about how that process worked, because usually there's not a whole lot of room for an artist's vision. Yeah. Uh, um, I say thank God for Brian Fuller, who, who's been on the show and is just such a great guy. Yeah. And uh, a wonderful. And, and for Hannibal, because you know you hear Hannibal. 
and you go, how's that going to work? It's just, yeah. You know, you don't have high expectations. No, nobody has high expectations that that's going to work. Um, um, but then I was sent the script and I read the script and the script was astonishing. We didn't, I think there were like two scenes, uh, two very short scenes that we ended up not using from the, uh, the rest of it was, you know, an unchanged pilot script that I got. The, you know, the first draft that I read was the draft we shot. Mm. Uh, a white script. <laughs> yeah, look at that. It was mad. We didn't have, we didn't go through all the colors of the rainbow as we went through it. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it, so it was there. It was all there on the page. I met with Brian and immediately understood that he and I had the same fascination in the subconscious mm-hmm. level of storytelling. Now, film, my own film language was something I felt I could bring. Uh, he just had, he was just interested in the psychological. Right. His imagery was you know, as much of what's happening inside Will Graham's head as what's physically happening in the procedural sense. And that was just great. That was fantastic for me. Well, it's a very surreal kind of, or hyper-real maybe, artful vision. Yeah, it's vision. funny. I never yeah. thought of it as, people. it's funny, people go back and say, oh, surrealism. Um, but I never really, I just kind of, I was, like, to me, it kind of, you know, reminded me of, you know, repulsion and things like that, where you're inside, I'm looking from inside of my someone else's head yes. and that is as valid a place to stand and look from when you're composing your film frame as anywhere else although it's an operatic vision you know yeah. it's it's this colorful explosive kind of but it's still meditative yeah. and moody and yeah. grim and but there's always a sense of movement going on and i feel like i'm going deeper into someone's mind yeah. and thoughts and visions yeah there was a lot of you know i, I think operatically speaking it got more operatic as well mm-hmm. as it went on. And I think to some extent, I my tendency was to ground more and Brian's tendency was to be more operatic. Mm-hmm. So we kind of complemented each other That's that It's a great combination. Yeah. So you come in and say, oh, this thing, and I would say, um, you know, just just because we're doing sound, and I, I just made my arms really big then, <laughs> and I would go in and say, you know, let's just, just take that and compress it down, and 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 and, and I'm now compressing my hands into something smaller. Um, but I think what happened is, um, as I got to new Brian's vision, as we continued into two and three seasons, we earned the room to be as big and operatic as we wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not the first episode, maybe not even the first season, but by the season finale of the second season, which is, I think, one of my favorite things I've ever directed, mm-hmm. we were able to fill that kitchen with blood happily and get away with it with no problems at it's all. It's astounding. Do you think you got away with a lot of it because it was independently produced? Yes, absolutely yeah. we did. Yeah. If it had been a network production, yeah. there would oh, have been boy. no question. It would have looked like every other TV show. I don't know whether it would have looked specifically like it because maybe the, acted like it. Maybe would have been cut like it, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, thankfully, chaos theory leads us to be where we are, not where we could be. Hmm. You know, so I don't have to worry about those things. Um, you know, at the beginning, NBC were pretty good with us. Um, we had quite a small budget, and we were independently produced, so they didn't really have much of a say. They basically just licensed it. Yeah, uh, to mm-hmm. some extent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they weren't entirely behind Maz Mickelson at the beginning. And I mean, Brian and I really fought that because obviously Maz Mickelson, you know, and, and everything that happened ever since. So, um, but, you know, they were okay, though. They weren't, you know, I remember having to talk 
a lot of people I remember doing a lot of conference calls when we'd finished the first episode about, you know, how the color changed and how Will's vision worked. And I had to really break it down and, you know, I had to really nuts and bolts talk it through how, you know, what that really meant, you know, in ways that I didn't don't usually have to do and don't really like to do mm. because you were meant to let the audience decide those things. Right. But I had to explain it away a lot. Um, but only once. And then after that, they were like, right. You know, <laughs> and you know, you were off and running. Yeah, and we, and you know, I did the first episode of the first season. I did the third episode, and the idea was, if I did the first, like the third and the finale, I could keep an eye on it. And I also executive produced it. And often, executive producers is this the name on. I really, you know, I called timed every episode. I sound mixed every episode. I looked at every cut. I gave feedback. I was really involved. Um, not so much the third season, but the first two seasons, I did that all the way through to the end. Actually, the third season, I sound mixed every episode still as well. So, um, and there's a reason for that. Um, I got Brian Reitzel, who was a really good friend who did 30 Days of Night with me, to do the, to, to score the first episode mm -hmm. for me. And it was a real get because Brian, you know, is a movie guy and he's, you know, right. just, and we didn't have that much money and, you know, it was, um, but he was into it and he, but he, his agreement, the agreement we had, he and I was that, um, if he wasn't, if he was too busy to make the sound mix that I would mix it mm -hmm. and that I, I promised that I would mix it. If he scored it, I would mix it because I was the only person he trusted to mix it. And we'd mixed a movie together with John Hedges, Oscar winning mixer in New Zealand. Sure. And, yeah. and so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, don't worry. No matter what happens, if you're not able to go to the mix, I'll go to the mix. And I mixed every fucking episode because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he was always too busy. You know, yeah. um, he comes sometimes. But, well, and you know. the atmosphere and the, the web that's woven by the sound, uh, yeah. the surround sound yeah. mix is It was good. You know, we were able to basically st pick up from where we left off on 30 Days of Night, in fact, and, and then just go even further. Well, your collaboration with Brian Fuller mm -hmm. continued through American Gods, yep. this time for stars where yep. there are no commercial issues right. that you, yeah. there's no uh, mm. advertising. It's interesting, like that. yeah, that thing. I, 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 it's interesting to me uh, in ways that may not be interesting to other people, that whole thing. Hannibal was this really tight six-act structure. Mm -hmm. Now, I was used to films, and I was used to you know, the three-act structure. Movies are six TVs are six acts, mm -hmm. you know. If uh, you're lucky. If you're yeah. lucky, six acts. <clears throat> and and that's based on a network system where there are, because there's commercial breaks coming. Exactly. It was really good. I felt it was a really interesting a way to learn, like relearn filmmaking in some extent, because you had to pace your scenes differently. Yeah, you have to build and release in yeah. between act breaks. And it's very fast. Mm -hmm. It's very tight. Uh, Hannibal was always incredibly tight. You know, you kind of, you got there and then immediately then, then we were out. And then you got there and it was immediately you were out. And the filmmaking was very tight, had to be very tight because of that. Um, so that I thought was a really good thing. Mm -hmm. um, I never really thought about the idea that there were no, no, um, no, no censorship issues or advertising or anything like that. No censorship issues, no. But we never really got beat with that stick on Hannibal. I, Anyway, I didn't mm. think. I mean, there was no overt sexuality. We couldn't no. show. No, there was no. no but the violence like, was certainly more extreme than you would find on network television. That's true. But it yeah. helped that it was on Saturday night and that mm. it was mm -hmm. independently produced. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it's funny because there were so many other pressures. Honestly, mm -hmm. yeah. I never really thought about the, the 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 upside of being on a on a on a you know a on premium a cable. cable. Oh, yeah. You know, at all until it was done. Um, I just was like, well, let's just do it. And then we'll deal with it later, you know. 
because that's always usually the way to do it anyway. You can't really ask for permission because people say no, so you beg for forgiveness afterwards. <laughs> you know, um, so you just go and do it. Well, we downsized you a little bit in uh, what we've just done this summer uh, that's yeah. coming out early oh, next year. Yeah. Uh, we did a little, uh, we did an anthology horror film yeah. called Nightmare Cinema, and it's yeah. something you and I had talked about doing for a while yeah. before it happened. Yeah, we, we, we tried to do, we tried to work yeah. together for a while, right? And yeah. we finally got it off yeah. the ground. Yeah. And so it's you and me and Joe Dante and Ryuhei Kitamura and Alejandro Bruges. Mm-hmm. And, um, your schedule was a little difficult yeah. so um, yeah, because I, you were so busy with American Gods. Mm-hmm. And so we, most of us shared the same crew yep. and the like, mm-hmm. but yours was kind of on an island yeah. because of the timing and all. Tell me a little bit about your experience putting that together. And, and now we come back to This Way to Egress. Yeah, This Way to Egress, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, so you called me, I remember, uh, year, couple of years, it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. And said, you know, you essentially said to me, you know, you got a story, you can have freedom. You know, you essentially said, <laughs> do what you want, right? It's you know, kind that's of kind of, what, yeah. kind of what you said was, do what I want, shall be the whole of the law. Yeah. You know, and... So I said, yeah, I do. I have this thing. And I don't think I told you the story behind no. it. I just said, I have this story. And I, I was kind of, it, it, I thought about it a few times, trying to find a way to tell this story. Because the story was quite important to me. The story itself, beyond my emotional attachment to the screenplay that we've done, I wanted to make this story. And um, so I said, well, what if I... I can't really, there's no way the feature length version of this is gonna, you know, do. But what if I just take the essence of it? And if I take one of the scenes, essentially, two of the scenes from, from, from Larry's story and just condense them into like a 20 minute film? I thought I could do that. So I said, look, I have this idea. And I, and then I sat and I wrote it and it, it just poured out of me, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, it, when you enjoy writing and you do write something that you feel is good, you know, it took a couple of days and I just, it just all poured right out of me. It was very easy. It was a little short. I think you mentioned mm-hmm. to me. You should, it was 14 pages. You, I should, you, you were like, you should, you should add some more. And so I went to Larry and I said, Larry, we need to, we need to expand this thing and I don't want to do it without you. And so Larry kind of just wrote another scene for me, which was the whole scene with a phone call. Ah, uh, okay. So then, so I'd written it and then Larry had written the scene. So I said, well, let's just share the writing credits on it and we'll just make it. Um, and, and I talked with uh, Charlie's brother and, and just said, we're going to do it. And I was like, okay, we got a chance to do this thing. And, you know, in a way, the story's been 17 years in the making or whatever. But so there was a lot of pressure for me at a certain point to go, oh shit, we got to make this. Mm-hmm. So what I think in terms of that whole, yeah, I wanted to get it right, and I think I was maybe a little nervous that I'd have the time and all those things. Then I ended up doing the Black Mirror right. you know, as well. And I remember writing you an email going, oh, God, I have to do this. It's Black Mirror. I have to do it. And can we? And then part of me was just like, oh, f- you have to do this. You've got to just do this. You just have to. You can't, like, let this go. You have to. Um, then we had all kinds of issues behind the scenes with right. rights and stuff. Right. And I was like, oh, I just have to, I'm going to have to just... just Force through this and just shoot this. So we shot it in four days, right? We shot it. Shot it in four days. Four days. In black and white. In black and white, uh, in downtown LA, all on locations. Um, and um, I got, I just, you know, I just called my friends and asked them all to help, you know? Elizabeth Risa, who I'd worked with before, played Helen. Adam Godley, who I'd worked with before, played Dr. Salvador. Uh, Ezra Buzzington played the older monsters, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we cast a wonderful couple of kids. And so, Yo Willems, a DOP who'd shot Hard Candy for me. And, you know, he, he'd always said to me, you know, if you've got a short film, I'll just do it. 
you know, I'll, I'll just do it as long as I can, you know, ideally if it's in LA where I live. Yeah. You know, so how often do you get to shoot in LA too? I mean, I hadn't yeah. in a dozen years. Yeah. No, it was, it was, we managed to make it in LA and we kept it, kept the budget low. We, we didn't shoot long days either. We shot, you know, relatively, we had that one day where we went, went into overtime, you know, for a couple hours, you know, with the, with the spider and the other thing. Right. But, um, we essentially we, 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 we had, it was a lovely set. It was a really great bunch of people. Well, and I that's think, the thing about horror movies. Right, I mean, horror movie crews are really great. I We're mean, all just, in it together. Everybody, there's yeah. there's this whole thing of you know just everybody supports each other, and there's no kind of funniness, and everybody's just there because they love it, you know. Exactly. Um, and so, and um, I got it edited by Tony Kearns, who cut the Black Mirror with me, and it's somebody I worked with my entire career. We did mm. that via remote, and um, so yeah, we we. Um, I remember we, yeah, we rehearsed a little bit and then we shot it and um, it was intense. It, it was, was really intense. intense. It really surprised me how intense it was. Uh, I mean, it just, it really shook me up shooting that. I, I, and Elizabeth too, you know, I remember at a certain point, you know, I think it was maybe the last day, the middle of the last day, you know, Elizabeth and I would say, well, if there's, a, if there's a feature version of this, we would all die. Because <laughs> <laughs> the process of shooting, the emotional process. It's very intense, and it is about a, a disintegrating personality. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and it's really kind of explicit and symbolic and, again, hyper-real, goes yeah. beyond realism, but yeah. not... And it's in kind of sense, in its own language. Yeah, it's yeah, funny. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad I made it now in some ways because I think I am a better filmmaker to make it than mm-hmm. I would have been then. I think I was able to, you know, I was able to better serve the story at this point than I would have been a long time ago. Um, but, you know, it's essentially a, a incredibly melancholic human story in that the actors really. I mean, it's really it's very just acting. Yes. It's really just acting. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, but, this is very visual and all the rest of it. But there's not. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't need to be. You know, it's not vision first. It's it's really an emotional story. Well, what you've done by making it monochrome is stripping away all of uh, mm-hmm. all of the distraction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're focused entirely yeah. on a, a melting mind. For, mm-hmm. I think it also clues you in immediately as you go in. Mm-hmm. That this is that there are you know this is gray, you know there are shades. It is all going to be gray. There's nothing going to be resolved here for you. Mm. Nobody's going to say, "Dang, it's not suddenly the colors not all going to shift and and we're going to have a resolution." You're just going to have to go through this thing and figure it out. Um, that was a big part of choosing to go monochrome in the end. I'd thought about shooting that in monochrome for a long time, and it was very late that I chose the, to chose to do it. Well, it's a great opportunity to do it as part of an anthology mm-hmm. rather than trying to make a, a monochrome feature yes, these that's days. True. Yeah. Well, I just want to express to you my appreciation for being a part of Nightmare Cinema. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it was such a great experience to yeah. have you there yeah. and to have you here and talk about it. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get all five of the guys together to, to talk on a round table on the show. That'd be wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for you know getting me involved. It, you you kind of did something amazing for me because that film, as you now know, you may have known before, was a hugely emotional thing for me and 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 it was it was a, it was really important for me to f- to finish it well I, I think anybody who watches it is going to feel that all right so, thank you anyway thanks again and uh david slade the maestro david aldrin <laughs> slade thanks thanks mick thank See you so much thanks for listening to post-mortem with mick garris download new episodes every other wednesday and subscribe on itunes